0: This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space, a live forum for the courageous discussion of difficult subjects. Tonight is part of a new series on trauma that is the result of medical treatment, or medically induced PTSD. Over the month of May, I'll be doing shows on the ICU experience, on children undergoing medical medical treatment, and on the change in pediatric guidelines that no longer recommend circumcision and why. Tonight, I'm gonna be focusing on the trauma of being an ICU patient, and in particular, how the impact of multiple painful procedures and delirium can result in PTSD that can last for years after the hospitalization and may be unrecognized for what it is. I'll be speaking to Nancy Andrews about her experience as a patient in the ICU where she did become delirious and has later suffered from PTSD. Nancy Evelyn Andrews lives on the coast of Maine, where she makes films, drawings, props, and objects. She works in hybrid forms, combining storytelling, documentary, animation, puppetry, and research. She's been the recipient of numerous grants and fellowships, including the John Simon Guggenheim Foundation, the LEF New England Moving Image Fund, and the National Endowment for the Arts. Six of Nancy's films are in the film collection at the Museum of Modern Art, and one is at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago Film Collection. Nancy studied at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago and received a Master of Fine Arts there in 1995. Nancy Andrews is currently on the faculty of the College of the Atlantic, where she teaches video making, animation, time-based arts, and film studies. Welcome to Safe Space, Nancy. Thank you, Anne. So, I know you were in the ICU for a long time. Tell me what... What brought you to there? How come you were a patient to start out with
1: um, <clears throat> well i was um, I have a condition that causes a weakening of the arteries, and I um, had an aneurysm that was being followed, and then it started to tear and I was in bar Harbor um, and eventually got life lighted to Boston where I had multiple surgeries and was in the surgical intensive care unit for a couple of weeks and in the hospital for nearly a month.
0: And during that time, I understand that you became delirious, and I wondered if you could just describe what that means in in the context of the ICU. Um, Well,
1: it's super common for this to happen, and probably if people have had friends or family in the ICU, they may have seen this, but people... Um, who are in the ICU are experiencing, like, a lot of drugs and a lot of sleep deprivation and pain management and all of this stuff and it, and trauma because you're really sick. And um, the result of that sometimes is you're not in touch with the same reality as everybody else. So you're having hallucinations and for some reason often these turn really ugly and paranoid and so i mean, you might a lot of, it's very common for people to think that the medical staff is somehow wanting to harm them or something like that um or see weird things on the walls or et cetera.
0: and my understanding is that in fact it's almost m- more the norm it's it's the exception almost not to get delirious in the icu that the combination of very severe, you know, very heavy-duty pain medications as well as sedation because so many patients are, of course, on mechanical ventilators. Yeah. Um, and the combination of sort of the lights being on all the time and no, the sleep-wake cycle being so off and no movement, yeah. that it's sort of like a perfect storm uh, for people to really lose uh, touch with what's real and what's not real.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Um, in my reading about it, preparing for this interview, Nancy, I was struck that that it's really being delirium is now being referred to as an acute brain injury, and right,
1: which means I think that it's um, <clears throat> not the kind of brain injury that necessarily would be long lasting. But it is interesting that that's one of the definitions of delirium. But there are long term effects from it for a lot of people that include cognitive and um, psychological um, problems. So
0: So I want to wait to talk about the psychological problems for a minute, but cognitively, did you feel that your own thinking was less sharp afterward? Um, Well, it took
1: me quite a long time to um, just get over the experience, even though I didn't believe that people were out to get me, it still was really unclear to me that I hadn't been at some time during the experience. But also, for example, m- months later, I was a guest um, at a film seminar, and after the screening, there was a question and answer period, which as a filmmaker, that's par for the course. I'm used to that. I'm usually really pretty good at them, and I couldn't in- understand the questions, I had to keep saying, "Could you rephrase that?" and and I it was almost impossible for me to answer them.
0: And he, and you're a film teacher. Yeah. Right. So. Right. And and does, is that something that's persisted? I know this is six years ago now or more. Do you feel like that is completely gone at this point?
1: You know, I don't know because I'm I just turned fifty, and so people also tell me that um, <laughs> <laughs> there's <laughs> right. other. Uh, other effects of um, aging, but I, uh, my, you know, my students laugh at me some days because I'm, I'm thinking it's Tuesday when it's Monday or, you know, um, so who knows why exactly, but.
0: Right. And I want to just uh, pause here for a second to just explain the extent of this problem, because what I understand is that about 5 million people in the U.S. are in the ICU in a given year, and about one-third of those people may suffer from delirium. So we're talking about a, a very common problem. Right.
1: I mean, I'm not even sure if that number is the one-third suffer from delirium or one-third suffer from problems that come out of delirium.
0: Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And when you say that, what do you mean by problems that come well, out of delirium? Well, I mean
1: the cognitive problems, and I mean the psychi- psychological problems of uh, depression, and PTSD symptoms, those kinds of things.
0: Yeah. So let's talk now about the psychological aspect of this. Um, we know that what PTSD means, post-traumatic stress disorder, is uh, the follow. You know, the fallout to an experience of of overwhelming helplessness, where there may be a very real threatened loss of life. We often associate it with. War war or combat, we associate it with rape or sexual assault. And really, the thought that medical treatment could be the cause of PTSD is not yet in the public consciousness, although that's changing. And, of course, your film is part of that. But tell me how PTSD manifested itself in you.
1: Well, for me, and it's, um, it's ongoing. I mean, it's way better now than it was, but when it started... Um, I hadn't been home from the hospital all that long. And they, you know, people don't really diagnose it as PTSD until you're a month out from the traumatic event. Anyway, before that, it's acute PTSD, I guess. But um, I would just have this weird feeling like I was back in the feeling of being in the ICU. And I, I... couldn't articulate it very well. And I called my um, doctor here in Bar Harbor and I told him what was happening. And he said, look, I've known you for a while. You know, I just want you to trust me on this. I want you to go see a psychiatrist. I think you might have PTSD. So I was super lucky that he recognized, like I said, I wasn't that articulate and I didn't even know. In fact, the movie I thought it was like the deer hunter because Mm -hmm. I was kind of experiencing. I think they show flashbacks in that, but I didn't really I wasn't even able to language that I was having a flashback at that point.
0: Right, so you really were lucky cuz you had a doctor who who got it. Who yeah. got it and got you to help quickly, which yeah. I can imagine is is not the norm sadly. Yeah, and um,
1: it's also, I mean, from what I understand, um it's something that you want to get treated sooner than later. Um you know, the best results typically are if people try to get treated as, you know, earlier.
0: Mm-hmm. So you said, when, you know, when I asked you about it, you said, well, it's, it's ongoing. And so I, what I get is that immediately you felt like you were sort of reliving it. You were having these flashbacks. How does it manifest now? Well, um, nightmares
1: have been, you know, persistent. So this was six years ago. And I still have nightmares, but the like the frequency is way reduced. And you know I've been getting help for you know every week for <laughs> six years. So, um, but uh, it used to be a couple times a week that I would have you know terrible nightmares and wake up in a panic. Um, and now it's maybe only maybe once or twice a month. Um, kind of interrupted sleep is fairly common, um, and then. I still like in the because I'm a filmmaker and I like to watch films. Um, I have sometimes get triggers from that. And for instance, I went to see um, Safe House, and uh, you know, at ten minutes in, they strap him in a chair. And because I was restrained at different points in the ICU, like when someone gets restrained in a movie, you know, as a, in any form of torture, I just have to leave the theater um at least until the scene's over but with that one I just you know decided that I couldn't really handle the movie so mm-hmm.
0: and and of course it, it makes complete sense because you were, I presume you were restrained in the ICU. Yeah, absolutely. And which so, is which is a yeah, very because common because I
1: was hallucinating, I was combative because I wanted to get out of the bed, I wanted to get the heck out of there and So they had to restrain me so that I wouldn't hurt myself by by climbing out of the bed when I really didn't have the strength to walk or stand, you know. And I was hooked to all this machinery. So
0: I want to just read, um, you've written this very powerful essay about your experience on your website, nancyandrews.net. I want to just read a few segments of it about this because they were very compelling to me. And it jumps around a little, but, um, you are trying to save my life, but it feels like you are trying to kill me. If I had one word to sum up my ICU experience, it would be quote unquote horror. In reality, the ICU is a torture chamber. If you take away the knowledge that everyone is trying to keep you alive, what is actually happening can be pretty dreadful. Being on a ventilator is a nightmare and your ability to communicate by speaking is taken away. If you are agitated, you will be restrained so that you stay in bed and don't hurt or kill yourself. And you are probably in pain from a traumatic event or serious illness to begin with." And it goes on. I'm going to stop there. It makes sense to me that seeing scenes of torture or being uh, tied down are just intolerable because, in fact, you did. While they were trying to save your life, it really was. A, an experience of torture in many ways.
1: Right. And then when you really aren't functioning well, I felt like, um, and I even wrote this at some point during my ICU stay, I thought they had removed seven eighths of my brain because that's what it, I don't know why I came up with that number, but that's what it <laughs> felt like to me because I, my thinking was so confused and clouded and, and all of that. So, um, you're trying to figure out what's going on, but you can't really. So, you know, for all I knew, I was in a, in a you know, a place of torture, and a lot of my hallucinations, you know, that was what was happening. So I wasn't in a hospital. I was in a deep well, as if it was Silence of the Lambs, or I was... Um, you know, being, uh, abused by some terrible parental figure or something like that.
0: It's very, if I try to imagine myself in your position in that ICU bed tied down, not trusting that they haven't taken out my brain, can't, I can't think straight. You were on a mechanical ventilator for some period of that time, correct?
1: That's right.
0: Yeah. yeah so you can't even speak or call for help, um,
1: And then, of course, after they – because I'd been on it for a while, and then when I was off of it, it had damaged uh, one of my vocal cords, so I couldn't speak above like a bare whisper. And I remember trying to, you know, get help at one day, and it was just so pitiful. It was like whispering help, you know. Mm. So it's it's a very helpless feeling.
0: One of the experiences that so many people who suffer from trauma report later is a feeling of shame that goes Mm -hmm. with PTSD. And I'm curious, did you suffer from shame about
1: this? Well, I still think I, on, on occasion, feel like I must be a weak person that I have this, you know, trouble getting over this experience. And I know that that's totally
0: irrational, but, you know... To this day, I have moments where I feel that way. My, I, I think that that's almost universal. In my experience as a clinician with trauma, that people blame themselves for the event to begin with or for their inability to heal from it in the way they wish or that their friends wish they would get over it. Right. Um, it, it almost seems to be one of the defining hallmarks of PTSD is this aspect of shame. Um, do you know other people? Do you have... Do you have peers that you've been able to share the experience with?
1: Well, uh, one of the, the PTSD things that I think is a normal trait of it, too, is that a lot of people want to tell the story over and over again. So I'm one of those people. I've, <sighs> I, for a long time, I just would talk about this experience to almost anyone that would listen. Um, but in terms of other people, <clears throat> knowing other people that have been through what I've been through, I really haven't had that much dialogue with other people. Um, And to this point, I don't think there's been any real mechanism for that, but there is a a woman at University of Nebraska that's in the beginning stages of trying to set up some sort of internet support group.
0: And if Um, someone hearing this show wants to find her, what's her name or would you know that? Her name
1: is Michelle Ballas, B-A-L-A-S. And, you know, She's very knowledgeable about this, and she's been um, working to help educate people about it. And
0: how wonderful! And um, where in Nebraska is she? I don't Nebraska know
1: where that she? project is in terms of setting this up, but I I'm confident that in, sometime in the n- near future, hopefully, there'll be um, more for people in terms of support. But you know, it's a funny thing because, and when you have PTSD, or you know, when you've been through something traumatic, although you want to tell your story, there's also um like you also don't. It just feels sort of threatening to like the idea of of talking to somebody else is kinda of scary, you know.
0: Mm. Say more about what makes that scary.
1: Well, um it's very vulnerable, you know, and, and I think people have a lot of emotions around it and mm. every time you do that it kinda of stirs it up and there's part of you that just wants to forget about it. Um and, you know, and I think that's an expectation in our society, too. Like, oh, can't you just, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and forget about it and move on with your life? And, and of course, you know, one wants nothing more than to be able to do that. But I'm of the belief that you really have to um, get it out in some way. Um, so, like, making art has been a really great way for me to get it out in terms of... Um, kind of moving it in a way that is um, manageable for me. So in a way, I suppose I am able to get some of what you might get through a support group, you know, through making the artwork.
0: So I want to talk to you about your art and about the film in a minute, but I want to ask you one last question about the PTSD part first. Sure. Which is when you say, you know, you talk about this pressure to forget, to move on and forget. The question of memory and trauma is one that um, has been such a source of controversy in our culture as a whole. But it's also a very profound experience for each person, you know, how trauma affects our memory. Mm -hmm. And you write very powerfully about these sort of unconscious memories. And I wondered if you could tell me a story that captures what your experience is of memories that you don't remember you have.
1: Well, um, I'm kind of of the belief now, or I am of the belief now, that we remember a great deal more in some way than you would think is possible. Um, for example, uh, one thing that happened to me was um, that I, in our town we have this day called uh, Pajama Day, and everybody comes out, and it's early mornings, shopping specials, and and afterwards, I was having breakfast in this very noisy restaurant. You've got the clattering and the silverware, et cetera, and people are dressed in pajamas. Well, I look down, and someone walks by in their pajama pants with clogs on. And at that moment, I just had to get out of that restaurant. And to me, that says that, you know, I could remember the operating room, you know, because I imagine it's a fairly noisy busy place and there's people wearing scrubs with clogs on because clogs are like the regular thing that surg- surgeons wear in in
0: the uh, operating are. room. It's almost a and uniform. there's been
1: studies done at New York Presbyterian Hospital that did a study where they played word pairs um, over the speakers in the OR to unconscious patients, right, who are having surgery. And it was a double-blind type of study. So then people went around and read the word pairs to the patients after they um, were recovering, and they didn't know who had heard them and who hadn't heard the word pairs. And the people that had heard them were able to, they'd say the word, and they would say the other word in the pair. Now, they were, you know, under sedation, right?
0: Right. There, there are a number of studies that show that people can hear and remember what is said throughout an entire operation, under which they're under a general anesthesia, which is a, of course a very terrifying thought, yeah. thinking about what you went through. yeah, so maybe that's a good segue to your film. I know you've made this very compelling and even disturbing film on a phantom limb about this experience in which you show you show the scars that your body uh, still carries as a result. And it really brings home what a huge surgery you went through. And I I would love to hear you say more about the process of making the film. You likened it to almost being in a support group. Um, How did you get the idea for the film, and sort of how long did it take you to make it? What was that process like?
1: Well, after the surgery um, and getting home, and, you know, I also don't want to make this interview sound like I'm not profoundly thankful for all the help I was giving. I mean, it was really... Amazing that I'm alive, and I totally appreciate that. Um, But I got home, and it took me months before I was strong enough to do pretty much anything, you know, like months before I could walk to the end of the driveway. And um, But uh, my partner started trying to get me to draw even when I was in the ICU. So drawing was something I could do. You know, I was strong enough to hold a pencil, and as I was getting better, I would start to do bigger drawings, and I actually wondered, I had been a filmmaker for a number of years before this happened, but I was very uncertain whether I was going to ever make another film. Um, Certainly for a while, I didn't have the strength to do it, because it's pretty physically demanding work to stand over an animation table and to handle the cameras that are, um, at that time I was shooting on uh, cameras that were, you know, 10 pounds or so. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, but I did, um, have an idea for a film that actually started when I was in the hospital and, um, it had to do with birds as a transcendent kind of figure that could cross from the earth to the sky and was, um, sort of the go between, between life and death. Uh, and, a metaphor for that. And I had talked to a clergy person in the hospital about this idea. So um, I started to write about it and wrote a proposal and um, was totally um, flabbergasted to get a Guggenheim fellowship to make that film. So that, so I did make another film.
0: And for me, you know, I'm not... Um I'm not an experienced film viewer of this type, but I was really struck at how powerfully you convey, uh, you know, give, gave me a taste as a, as a viewer of, of the experience of what it might have been like inside you. There were parts of the film that felt very disorienting and frightening and, and confusing, and I, I was so struck at how powerfully you were able to help the viewer get inside what that was like. And I wondered if it, at times it was upsetting for you to make the film or if you, if you felt like you were sort of reliving it at times to try to capture it like that. Um, you know,
1: it's funny because, for instance, when I go to see someone else's film and there's a helicopter scene for a long time, I couldn't handle that. But there's a helicopter in my film. Or, you know, there's, if there's a surgery scene in a, in a film that I'm watching... I have a lot of trouble with that, but there's surgery scenes in my film. So there was something about it that, um, because I was in control of it, I Ah. think it felt really different to me um, than sort of experiencing someone else's version of it. So I guess it was very empowering for me. And I think, um, also, I think it allowed me to express the certain amount of anger around the event um because i sort of say it's like my riot girl film or something it's <laughs> it's more aggressive than other films i had made to that point and um i remember saying to someone to like well it's, it's not the easiest film to watch especially for the first 10 or 15 minutes but welcome to my world you know that i experienced that for weeks so you can you can experience it for 10 minutes you know uh.
0: Is there almost a feeling of of um, almost being angry with people who haven't had to suffer this, wanting them to really get it?
1: Oh, I don't think so much that. I mean, I, I do want people to get it. But at this point, I suppose I'm more concerned about other people who may be suffering from this right now and have no idea why they feel the way they do and haven't been able to get help um, for that. So it's sort of a mission for me to try to raise the awareness and and um, exposure so that people know about it. You know, So many people know that if people come back from war, that there's an expectation that they are likely to have problems um, like PTSD, like depression, like readjusting it's like we don't really understand that as a you know the general public doesn't understand that about somebody coming back from um a near death experience in the ICU so um i guess that's one of my big hopes is that that becomes more generally known and um therefore people get the help they need to get to enjoy the lives that they've you know been Lucky enough to be saved, but some people are so miserable after having their life saved because of all these other symptoms that it's it's hard to live.
0: I want to end with a question to you uh, again, following up on what you said about art and how your being in control really maybe sort of changed the experience. I want to ask you a last question about music mm-hmm. because I understand that music was also really a lifesaver to you both during and after. And I wondered if you could say just a little bit about how music was helpful to you?
1: Well, uh, when I was in ICU, my partner, just out of some, you know, it just made sense to her. I guess she went and bought an iPod and loaded it with some songs. And um, that was like the one of the only safe places I could go. And it was like entering another world to be able to listen to music. Um, so I think that's something that Can be very helpful to people that are in these um, kinds of experiences, and it was really helpful to me afterwards. Kind of uh, to listen to music. It was um, very a very deep experience for me that was very positive.
0: Nancy, we're going to have to stop. I want to thank you so much for being my guest on Safe Space. Thank you. And are you going to mention it? Yes, the I am. <laughs> I'm absolutely <laughs> going to mention it. So Nancy and I are actually going to be on a panel together one week from today. On Wednesday, May 9th at 7 p.m., we're going to be at the St. Lawrence Arts Center for a, uh, a showing of the film, of Nancy's film, On a Phantom Limb. And Nancy will be there to talk about it. I'll be making some comments as well. Liz Sinclair from the Maine Humanities Council. If you have friends in other parts of the Northeast who are interested in this, it will, the film will also be shown in Boston on May 8th at the Brattle Theatre in Cambridge. And on May 10th, it will be shown at the College of the Atlantic on Mount Desert Island, and there'll be even more of an extended discussion there about the role of art in, um, in larger systems and how it can communicate about larger problems. Uh, does that sum it up, Nancy?
1: Yeah, and um, all of that whole series, I'm working with a group in Cambridge called Artists in Context, and they've been um, terrific in helping organize all these events. So
0: So if you'd like to, if you're in in southern Maine, do look up St. Lawrence Arts Center um, on the web, and you can get tickets uh, there for the Wednesday, May 9th at 7 p.m., showing of the film on a phantom limb and the panel discussion. My thanks tonight to Ken Capron for mixing the sound, to Maurice Lennon for the music. Uh, if you'd like to listen to this show in its entirety or email the link to a friend, please go to the website at www.safespaceradio.com. If you'd like to email me with a request for a future topic, please do so at, Dr. at SafespaceRadio.com. You can download shows through iTunes if you go into the store under podcasts, and you can like us on Facebook. Lastly, you can email subscribe at the website, and you can get there for a weekly announcement with a link to the show. Coming up next is The Watchdog.